On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we have a great pleasure of welcoming to Knox Dr. Ross Hastings. I got to know Ross through Regent College. He's a professor of uh, pastoral theology at, at Regent College. I'm a, what, one of my degrees is from there. But I was invited to be part of a pastoral science uh, project that they were doing. They were Regent College wanted to be at the forefront of get, getting beyond this conflict understanding that faith and science have nothing to do with each other and in fact are in opposition and they out of it was rooted in conviction that no you know what these two actually are deeply integrated and actually co-inhere there's a relationship of mutual dependence interdependence between the two and uh, I was invited to be part of that cohort Ross was a, a very important part of that as well and uh, he, he's a guy with some deep intellectual heft he doesn't have one PhD but two one in organometallic chemistry and the other in theology um, just because life wasn't difficult enough. He thought he'd throw another PhD in there. Um, But matching that keen intellect is a heart that is so bright and beautiful for Jesus Christ. And so, Ross, welcome to Knox. Why don't you come forward, and I'm going to pray for you. Pray especially for Knox, uh, for, for Ross, because his back, he threw it out. And so he has been hobbling around and in great pain Someone thought you were a senior at the restaurant, right? Because of that. Let's not talk about that. (laughs) Let's pray for Ross, shall we? Lord God, thank you for the gift of this servant. Thank you for his person, for his mind, for his heart, for how you have shaped his life. Thank you for his body. And we pray for his body right now, for relief for his back, that you would bring healing and relief from the pain. But we pray a special anointing of your spirit as he preaches your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Phil, for your very gracious welcome and your invitation to share the Word of God. I've so enjoyed the service so far, and uh, lovely to participate in this rich liturgy and, uh, and music, and uh, my privilege to be a part of that and to share from God's Word today. We're going to look at John 19, John 20, rather, 19 to 23, which was just so beautifully read for us. Um, I, was, I took comfort, actually, from the, a line in the first hymn we sang, which says, uh, weakest means work out your will. I feel that way today. I'm one of those weaker means. I'm struggling with back pain. And uh, I came over to the East to lecture at McMaster Divinity School uh, just these past few days. And the day before I left, my back went, went out of joint. So I've been struggling the whole time. Uh, but I'm trusting God that in my weakness, he will be strong. So. Uh, Let's look at his word together as we share the great reality that with God impossible is nothing. Uh, This passage was laid upon my heart my very first year of teaching at Regent College when I came to be the professor of mission studies initially. 
And it became actually the heart of a book I've written called Missional God, Missional Church. But my purpose, I can assure you, is not to sell books today. But it is to, to say that my meditation on this rich passage continued after my book. Sometimes when you write a book, it's very final. And you think of all the good things you should have said after you've written it. And uh, this is a multifaceted diamond, this amazing uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus to his disciples on the evening of that first day of the week. And uh, I, I've come at it from a fresh angle recently. I want to share my meditations with you with respect to just this one thing, the difference that Jesus makes when he comes to his people. The difference that Jesus makes when he comes to his people. If there's one thing I miss about not being a pastor, I was a pastor for some 20 years laterally in White Rock at Peace Portal Alliance Church. I miss preaching on Resurrection Sunday tremendously. It's a, such a glorious morning always, irrespective of the weather, that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And um, this year, I didn't get to do that, but I, I consider today a little bit like that. And here's why. That is the Easter season in the calendar of the church is just over, ending with Pentecost Sunday. And now we're into ordinary time. But it's not as if we leave the resurrection behind as we come into ordinary time. And I want to spell out the difference that Jesus makes when he comes in risen power to his church. As a word of encouragement to you as a church, the consequences of Jesus' presence in our midst. Soccer has always been somewhere between a passion and an idol for me. Uh, my grandfather played for Hearts and Motherwell and Wraith Rovers and Hamilton Academicals, which are four teams in Scotland. I have Scottish background. And um, so I've always been passionate about soccer, played a lot in my youth. Uh, I don't play much today anymore for obvious reasons. Um, it kind of reminds me, one of my best friends who I played squash with a lot as we were getting older used to wear this t-shirt, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of TV advertisements, but one back in 2006 always held my attention, and those of you who are soccer fans will know about this one. It's an ad in which Beckham, Ronaldo, Gerard, Balak, Defoe, and Kaká are all hot-dogging on bars. It looks like they're, they're doing all their soccer moves on bars, which are suspended mid-air. And uh, it ends with this cracking overhead goal by Kaká from Brazil. And then comes the great caption, impossible is nothing. Well, you know, I believe that caption is very apt for our passage today and for the state of the church in the West today. We need something impossible as the church today. The church is in a state of decline in the West. 70% of the world's Christians live south and east, Africa and Asia, only 30%. We're no longer the majority, the majority church. And I think sometimes we make a mistake when we speak about the two-thirds world church uh, when it's actually the majority world church. It's not the third world church. It's the majority church. And we in the West are slowly declining I think the state of the Christian church is very much highly enculturated. We hardly know what we believe based on the grand story of the Bible because we are so infected by the stories of modernity and post-modernity. Our distinctiveness is lost, and therefore our missional power has also been lost. 
But I'm not one of those people that feels depressed about this. I believe there's hope, precisely because of this great passage, precisely because when the church re-invites Jesus to be the center, once again the church will be the church in its full missional power, and God will be at work. So what happens when the risen Jesus comes? On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here is Jesus coming to stand in the midst of a group of people who are highly discombobulated, highly disoriented. And he stands in their midst, and as a result of his risen presence in the center of that community, there was a radically transforming miracle. His was a sudden, triumphant presence in diametric contrast with how they'd last seen him impaled on a cross, a limp, dead body afterwards. Now he is risen, and as communities of disciples today, we celebrate this triumph too, that he is risen, and he stands in our midst today to renew us and to restore us and to make us the community that he wants us to be. We celebrate it in songs like this. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the Savior's brow. But as I look at the story again, I, notice this. There's victory in this story, but it's no military victory. After he said this, verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He stands as risen, yes, but the scars of the cross are still in his hands and side. If you uh, go to John's next book, or, 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 or uh, one of one, the, the book he ends the Bible with, the book of Revelation, we will continue to see in the apocalyptic vision of John that this risen, glorious king is also always the lamb freshly slain. The words in the original are precisely that. In Revelation chapter 5, he's a lamb freshly slain. In other words, his kingdom that's represented by his presence in the midst of his people is not one of military victory. The values of his kingdom are different to those of earthly kingdoms. Another great hymn expresses this well when it says, we tell how Christ, the world's redeemer, as a victim won the day. And so we are transformative and missional in our society, not by a hegemony, not by, a, uh, by force, but rather as influential, as salt and light. The church has often done better in seasons uh, when it has not been in the cultural hegemony, but rather the, 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 the minority exerting an influence. So... Here, Jesus comes and stands in their midst. And there are four things that happen as a result of his coming to their midst. When the risen Jesus comes, number one, disciples get reoriented. When they see the Savior, risen in triumph, and yet with the marks of the cross upon their hands, things begin to click for them, and from being, they move from being discombobulated to be recombobulated, if there's such a word. Disoriented to reoriented. That's the first miracle of the story. The before picture, the sort of, you know, a little bit of a before and after picture in this, in this story, a little bit sometimes like the advertisements on TV. There's a before, a before of, uh, that relates to diet or, or whatever, and then there's an after picture. 
Well, here's the before picture, and uh, this little group of disciples, which are the microcosm of the church, because I actually believe John is giving us a picture of the church. John, John works with metaphors. John doesn't spell things out. He never uses the word church in his gospel, nor does he tell us about the institution of the Lord's Supper directly in his gospel, which is kind of strange, but he gives us a miracle in John chapter 6. Um, in which he, uh, about the, the breaking of the bread, the breaking of the loaves, and then gives us the most profound teaching about the Eucharist in all of the New Testament, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. So Jesus, Jesus is a metaphor, uh, sorry, John is a metaphorical thinker. And the before picture of this disciple, this group of disciples is like a microcosm of the church. And they are, frankly, a motley crew of notable failures. Every one of them. They had ministered effectively alongside Jesus for three years, and their level of competence had risen. James and John thought they might actually be qualified to sit at the right and the left in the kingdom. And then comes the trial, and then comes the cross. And where are they? Nowhere to be seen. Even on this first post-resurrection day, they're in a pretty sorry state. They're unconvinced, even though some of them have actually been to the tomb. And the claims of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene functions wonderfully in John chapter 20. Someone has said she's the apostle to the apostles. Because she runs having seen Jesus and tells them about him. And they still don't receive that very well because of their chauvinism perhaps or their jealousy that they hadn't been chosen for that first appearance. All of this, of course, just magnifies the amazing grace of Christ who appeared to them on Easter Sunday evening despite all their failures. That's the most beautiful piece of this whole story. Despite the uh, terrible failures of his disciples in whom he had invested, he still comes to them and stands in their midst. Isn't that a little bit like us as the church? I feel some sympathy with them because no doubt they were grieving the loss of their master. I suspect they were, their grief was a complicated grief. They had regrets. It's true that John attributes their isolation to fear, but it was fear, no doubt, intertwined with sporadic numbness alongside turbulent waves of grief and remorse. Why weren't we there for him? Most importantly, the total situation of the first disciples, as John describes it, in a room behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders of that day, I believe is a metaphor of their powerless state. The church father, Peter Chrysologos, the doctor of homilies, notes that the extent of their terror and the disquiet caused by such an atrocity had simultaneously locked the house and the hearts of the disciples. Their physical entrapment symbolized a deeper entrapment. This infant microcosm of the church, I would say, it hadn't a prayer when it comes to world evangelism. No chance in this current state. They would have been voted the group of human beings most unlikely to start a new world religion. They certainly could offer little by way of shalom because they were experiencing none. And I have to tell you that that little picture of the church encourages me because in the West today, we're a lot like that. We're behind locked doors as the church, often lacking influence in the culture, perhaps because of fear, 
Perhaps because we are enculturated as the church. So important for the church to enculturate, that's with an I, what you're doing in your mission process right now, to understand and contextualize the gospel for this culture, but also to be aware of how much the culture has penetrated our thinking and our hearts, causing us to be behind locked doors, really because we're no different to the culture. We don't have a whole lot to offer. Now, the after picture is another story altogether. The difference is made by Jesus' presence in their midst. And I'm sure they were shocked at first, and I wonder if some of them thought, I must be seeing a, uh, an apparition, as grieving people sometimes do see apparitions. But then they all suddenly realized they're all seeing the same thing. This is no apparition. This is the real Jesus. And they begin to be transformed that day in amazing ways. How? Well, because here he was in risen, triumphant presence, and they suddenly knew death had been conquered. And that would be reflected in the writings of the apostles. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus is the victor over death. And suddenly they realized that. And that would permeate their thinking. It would galvanize their mission because death held no fear for them. Furthermore, they would suddenly realize by looking at the scars in his hands that he was the victor not only over death, but those scars represented his victory over sin and the atonement he had accomplished. They may not have realized all of that just in that moment, but as they thought about this occasion, more and more of these, these realities would uh, begin to infiltrate their thinking, and they would each begin to pro proclaim the wonderful doctrine that because Jesus has died for our sins, forgiveness is available for humanity, justification is available for humanity, and transformation from the power of sin is available for humanity. This was how they were reoriented as the people of God. And I want to suggest to you part of the reorientation was seeing the scars in the hands of Jesus. Because if, if this person was God, but he also had scars in his hands, suddenly they would begin to realize that our God is a God who suffers with us. The Christian God is the only God in all the world religions who actually suffers with us. And Christ, the Son of God, had entered into our suffering, not only to take away our sin, not only to remove death, but in order to sympathize with us in all of our grief and all of our brokenness. And when they looked in those nail-scarred hands, they would know they had a Savior and a Lord who cared for them deeply. And I want to say to you today, I'm not sure in what ways you might feel disoriented today as you come to church. It could be because you're worried about sin and guilt, and I point you to the Savior who's able to forgive all your sins and to create you anew. Some of you may come here today because you've suffered loss recently through death. And I'm going to tell you that uh, I have been through that too. I lost my wife six years ago to cancer. I know what it is to walk that journey. And um, that th th grief is real and grief really never goes away. But our comfort in the midst of our grief is the presence of Christ to us who actually takes our grief and carries it up into the very throne room of heaven and presents us to the Father and sustains us in the midst of all of that. Some of you may feel disoriented because of suffering you're going through, and you're wondering, where is God in the midst of my suffering? And I want to assure you he's right there by your side, and that he's a sympathetic high priest, 
Jesus, our Savior, is at the right hand of the Father on your behalf and sends his spirit to minister comfort to you. So no matter what you're going through today, I want to encourage you, come to Christ. Come to the risen Christ. He is the answer to help you begin to be be reoriented again in the midst of your disorientation. So when the risen Jesus comes, number one, disciples get reoriented. Number two, when the risen Jesus comes, reoriented disciples form the church. They become community. That's what happens in this passage. This is John's Pentecost, his version of it. I actually am of the opinion that the Holy Spirit didn't actually come here when he breathed the Spirit on them. He's simply giving us an anticipation. It's proleptic, if you like. It's an anticipation of the day of Pentecost. There aren't two Pentecosts. There are only one. And I think John is giving us a picture of it. And when Jesus breathes over his disciples, he's anticipating the day of Pentecost when the church would be born. But his presence in their midst as the one breathing out the Spirit defines what the church is. All traditions of the Christian faith agree, if they're really honest, that it's the presence of Christ that defines the church. You know, we, re- we rehearse the Nicene Creed, and we should. It's a great creed. And it talks about one holy, Catholic, apostolic, one holy, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And all of those de- definitions are important. But throughout, throughout the history of the church, each of those definitions have been taken and they've been sort of reworked to suit particular traditions. So that when the reformers came along, the one thing that they said is, actually what defines the church is not fundamentally those definitions, although they are important. It's the presence of Jesus in the midst. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, so the disciples get reoriented, and then they get formed into a community by the breathing of the Spirit, by the presence of Jesus in their midst. And it's as a community that this little group will turn the world upside down. I want to encourage you that as I read my Bible, and especially as I read John John chapter 20, I come to understand that the whole church is the first missionary, not any individual. You as a community are the first missionary. Missionaries are not those we send overseas. They are missionaries. But they're only an example of what each of us is individually. But even more important, what we are as a church. You know, I don't believe that there are some churches that are missional, which is kind of an invoke term, and some that are not. Because actually, if you belong to the, to, to the missional Christ, who's the sent one, and if you are in union with the Holy Spirit, who is the missionary Holy Spirit of the book of Acts, guess what? You don't have a choice. You are the missional church. And the impulses of the missional God are at work in you. The only question is, will you get in touch with those impulses? Leslie Newbigin, who helped to spawn this fresh emphasis on um, the missional church, one day said, Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men, but he did so by forming a community. It's the power of community that's transformative. In Acts chapter 2, when the church begins to be, uh, when the church has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and it begins to make such a powerful impact, it's because they devoted themselves to being the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. They didn't become a, a, a weakling church. They didn't become, if I, could, if I could say this, and this is a little controversial, I know, they didn't become a church that put all of the sort of um, cookies on the lower shelf. 
They didn't become a church that was shallow. They didn't hide the Eucharist in order to be missional. They were missional because they devoted themselves to the exposition of the Word of God. They were missional because they were established afresh in the Eucharist every time they met. And they were missional because they were a a community that actually was a reflection on the divine communion of the Trinity. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. How? Because you have love for one another. You can't have love for one another in isolation from one another. You can only have love for one another in community. And so I want to encourage all that's going on here in this church and little bits that I've heard that your communities are so important. Your smaller communities, your larger community, and above all, that you as a church are the community that God has called to be missional. It, it's, as, it's how you relate to one another, which is alternative in our culture. It's as you demonstrate um, justice in your community as a model for the culture. It's as you demonstrate racial harmony in ways that are not always present in the culture. In that way, you are missional. I guess I'm on about the church and mission because I'm, I'm of, I'm, I've, I've, I've learned that apparently there are 20 million Christians in North America who do not come to church. 20 million who think that they can worship in front of a TV screen with whatever particular uh, preacher they, they fancy. This is, this is diametrically opposite to the New Testament. You cannot be a Christian and not be in community. The words unchurched Christian are frankly an oxymoron. And you say, why, why are you telling us we're here, we're the converted? I know you're the converted. Bless you. I want to encourage you. Keep at it because sometimes church is tough, isn't it? Sometimes it has tensions. But as you grow through those tensions and through conflict resolutions and you grow deeper together, that community is the most powerful force for God. Um, see, many of the people who don't come to church anymore who are Christians often do so because they are, primary reason I hear is because the church is imperfect. The church is full of hypocrites. Well, here's an interesting thing. Here is Jesus, the very Son of God, And he looks at these 11 people, actually it was 10 people at that point, 10 people in a room, and every one of them is a hypocrite. Every one of them has failed miserably. What does he do? He comes and stands in their midst and restores them. Despite the magnanimous grace by which Jesus associates with these struggling disciples, many of us struggle to commit to the church. And see, yes, you are here, and I bless you that you're here. But I still think sometimes in the West, we think we talk about going to church. We go to church for an hour and a half on Sunday, and we think that's, that's the church. When in fact, we're called to be the church in a much more radical, transformative way. And that requires commitment and sacrifice. In the book, A Distant Grief, the real story behind the martyrdom of Christians in Uganda, Kefa Sampengi who survived Idi Amin's persecution in Uganda, writes about a brother in the revival there who said to Kefa, until God breaks your will, he will never use you. You will remain only a nice loaf of bread. He explained to me that unless I was broken, I would be too proud to lose my life for another sinner. I would be too proud to give my life away for people who were not perfect. I would, I would wait for the perfect person in the perfect community, and I would never find them. And Folks, I encourage you to be the broken body of Christ. Give yourself to one another because this is the way in which God works missionally in his world. Thirdly, 
So disciples get reoriented. The church is formed. Thirdly, when the risen Jesus comes, reorienting disciples form the church, and the church begins, watch this, the new creation. Something wonderful about John 20 that's not in any of the other accounts of the Great Commission. I call it the Greatest Commission because it's the Trinitarian Commission. But uh, one of the reasons it's so great is it gives us the scope of what's involved in when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He says that in a very interesting context. It's a new creation context. In other words, the church has been called by God to bring in the new creation, which means the church is called to be engaged in every aspect of life. There can be no dualism for the Christian church, a dualism of being in church and the other six days, a dualism of clergy and laity. All are called to participate in God's work in bringing in the new creation through arts, through sciences, through architecture, through every discipline. In other words, the call of the Christian gospel is not just to help sinners be reconciled to God, all important though that is. It's for people to be rehumanized and to recover what it means to be humans fully alive in Christ. Because see, when Jesus stands in the midst of this group of disciples, he does so as someone who is the last Adam, recapitulating the whole creation story. There are a number of evidences, and for the sake of time, I won't give you them all, but... Um, First of all, this happens on the evening of the new creation's first day. Secondly, as in the creation account, there was a wind blowing, the Spirit hovering. Here there's a wind blowing. It's the wind of the Spirit bringing about the new creation. What's even more striking is that in Genesis chapter 2, God breathed into the nostrils of the first humans being, human beings the breath of life and, and birthed new humanity, right? What's Jesus doing here in this, in this passage? It says he breathed the Spirit upon his disciples. We're meant to go, aha! Genesis 2 is being repeated in John chapter 20. And a new creation, a new humanity has been birthed. Jesus stands there as both Man, but as Yahweh, breathing over these people to, to, to form them into um, the, the, new, the church, which is the new creation, the beginning of the new creation. In other words, when Jesus tells them that they need to go out and be sent, they're not just sent to fulfill the Great Commission. They're also sent to fulfill the cultural mandate. The mandate given to Adam, the first Adam, as the created being of God, was to care for the earth. That involved getting to know the earth. That involved, uh, Genesis chapter 4 talks about uh, somebody called Jubal, who had a band. And that was the, the first artists in the book of Genesis. And there's another person who is a metallurgist in, Gen in, in Genesis chapter 4, who uh, knows about metals. And you get the idea that the cultural mandate was two things. It was to understand creation in order to manage it well, and it was to appreciate creation and engage in the arts and add beauty to the creation. And so this is the basis in which I believe that the task of Christian mission is not just the business of sin management. Now, don't get me wrong. Sin management is all important. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. 
In Christ we are justified and begin to be sanctified. But I want to tell you that the most important concept in all of that is that we are persons in Christ whom God loves and wants to be, he wants us to be his human persons now fully alive in Christ, as the theologian Irenaeus once said. And being a human person fully alive in Christ means um, having an attitude to our work Monday to Saturday or Monday to Friday, wherever it is, whatever, whatever days you are involved in work, to be a fulfillment of God's work in the world, participating in the new creation, working towards uh, the end when all will be well again in our, in our creation. When the risen Jesus comes, disciples are reoriented, the church is formed in order that the, re- the new creation might be birthed. And folks, notice the emphasis on shalom in this passage. It's twice. Jesus breathes on them and says, shalom. And that was in order that they might receive it. And then he says, peace I give to you a second time. Shalom. And this time, he couples it with the commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And he gives them the commission to pronounce forgiveness of sins over people. It's as persons that we are, we are restored by the gospel. And it's as we live out shalom in our lives that we are uh, that we are missional. I, uh, I have to say, I was brought up in a very dualistic background. We honestly thought that overseas missionaries and pastors, they were the people who did the work of God. The rest of us were all in a second-class pl- second business. I want to proclaim to you that's simply not a biblical way of seeing things. That in fact, we've all been called to participate in the new creation and that your work, whether you ever open your mouth to say a single thing about Jesus, your work, your work matters to God. It's a participation in his new creation. Those of you that are scientists, for example, I know the, the profession of science, and, and particularly research science, is a very lonely profession, and I had that profession for a, a few years, and I know how lonely it was, and I sometimes wonder if I'd had a better theology of work, I might still be a scientist. Science, I believe, is very much a priesthood of creation. It's beginning to understand God's creation and it should lead to responsible use of science for the caring of creation that often hasn't happened. It's giving creation a voice. And uh, those of you who are artists, that too can be very lonely. Um, One of the things things I, I think we do as the church best is when we seek to say, what in this community needs beauty and how can we add beauty to this community? That's part of being a missional Christian. Lastly, so when the risen Jesus comes, disciples are reoriented, the church is formed, the new creation begins, and all of this because of a Trinitarian participation that's reflected in the words, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the core of this passage. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, he's not talking about example. He's not saying, I've been a good example of doing what the Father wants, and I want you to be a good example. You can't interpret it that way in the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John is all about our union with God. As the Father loves me, I love you. Jesus said, actually, we will come and make our home in you. 
So when Jesus, when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, he's saying, you actually, because you're in me by the Holy Spirit, are a continuation of my work in the world. And he breathes on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit in order that they're brought into the very life of the Trinity. I want to say this with all my heart. God is not asking you to do mission on your own as a church or as a person. God is asking you to participate in the mission he's already doing. Our task is to discern that, to be contemplative, to ask the question, God, what are you about in my life and the life of the people around me? What are you doing in the community around me? Um, and participate with that. Mission becomes possible because disciples are oriented and churches formed and new creation begins. Mission begins to be possible. Impossible becomes nothing. Mission becomes possible because Christ reoriented the disciples and all of a sudden these feeble people are suddenly contagious as the text says. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Mission becomes possible when disciples get reoriented to the crucified and risen Jesus and when they do, they're characterized by an irrepressible joy. Leslie Newbigin points out that mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. And I want to encourage you, live around that person of Jesus so that you will have a fresh explosion of joy. Mission is an acted-out doxology. The miracle of mission is possible because of this work of union, because Christ forms his church, and mission becomes possible because this Christ-centered church suddenly becomes utterly irresistible. You know, apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the growth of the church is maybe the greatest miracle of the Christian heritage. This little community that began with the 11 apostles here and then 120 disciples prior to Pentecost grew to 5,000 by Acts chapter 4. Rodney Stark has estimated that the church then grew from 1,000 in 40 AD to 25,000 by AD 100 to anywhere between 5 to 7.5 million by the start of the 4th century. That's a miracle in any, in any count, especially when it started with people like these disciples. The miracle of mission is that Christ works through his reorienting disciples in the Christocentric church as the agent of new creation. And I want to tell you folks, this is not often heard in the secular marketplace or in the academic debate about Christianity. We often are on the defensive because of the crusades and all those kinds of things. But people forget this, that the shalom imparted by the risen Christ to his kingdom community in John 20 was later shared with a broken and alienated world People were drawn into that gathered community of shalom, and the catalytic impact of that scattered community in turn ultimately brought shalom to the ancient and medieval world in all kinds of ways. The liberation of women, the humanization of children, hospitals, education, art, architecture, and yes, science was birthed within the Western tradition. So we can lift our heads high and know that when the church functions as the church, it has a powerful effect on society, and we need to be engaged in that society. The miracle of Christian mission is enabled ultimately by our Trinitarian participation, which is at the very heart of this passage, the outpouring of the Spirit, and afresh, I call upon you 
that you might fresh drink deeply of the presence of the risen Christ here. Receive his spirit afresh and move out to participate with the missional God in his mission to the world. Let us pray. Risen Lord Jesus, we come to remember you to feed on you, and to receive afresh the work of your Holy Spirit, to make us one, and to make us people of power, of humble power. May you use this congregation, Lord God, powerfully in the days that lie ahead to be a missional, your missionary in the city of Toronto and further afield. I pray in Christ's name, amen.